the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the Pro-America Report on The Answer, San Diego. Welcome, welcome, welcome. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Hey, it's a big day here. It's a big day. We got some things to cover, and I, I want to point you over to phyllisschlafly.com. That's where the Pro-America Report, our um our uh, uh, podcasts and everything end up there, but also press releases. And I've got a press release today. Uh, my colleague, Ryan Height, the communications director, uh, sent this out a few moments ago, and he's been helping out. He helps out on the show. He's a great radio guy, too. Um, headline, Manhattan DA shows the worst of prosecutorial abuse. And then the subheading, desecrating Lady Justice's blindfold. Here's the thing. We are in a state here of I mean this country we're in a in a moment here that is really really threatening. Yeah, district Attorney Alvin Bragg, who is the District Attorney of New York City, Manhattan, has um, uh, convened a grand jury, and and instead of everybody else has said there was no crime related to uh, campaign finance payments to Stormy Daniels and one other person, I think, um, but and even if it was, it was a misdemeanor. And the previous district attorney who was uh, retired, who retired a few, uh, maybe a year ago, he said there's nothing here. And now Bragg is in and he wants to be a hero to the left. And he has he has actually taken a misdemeanor and gotten more um, testimony, I guess, to make it sound worse. And then he can call it a felony. And it is crazy to watch this. Donald Trump is clearly being targeted now. And forget about the politics that most people think is going to help Donald Trump. This is horrendous for this country. And here's where I want to pause. And I want to tell you something. I saw that Elon Musk, and, and, and okay, this is what you need to know. This today's wink. Welcome, by the way. Welcome to the week here. Welcome to the Pro-America Report. And uh, I'm Ed Martin, and it's great to be together. PhyllisSchlafly.com, where you can see more. But today's wink, what you need to know. Elon Musk tweeted about this, and he said, it, something like, it looks like uh, George Soros figured out a, a really good bet, arbitrage, on how to get bang for your buck. Meaning you could go out and try to spend 25 or 30 or $50 million. In fact, I think uh, Peter Thiel spent like 15 or $20 million trying to help Blake Masters win a Senate seat in uh, Arizona, and he lost. But that's a big state and a lot of pieces, a lot of, um, a lot of um, things you got to worry about. Well, it, 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 Musk's point was George Soros made a smarter bet. Just go and help and, and pay for prosecutors to succeed, and you could turn cities into chaos zones. And we live this where I'm from in St. Louis. St. Louis City had prosecutors. D. Joyce Hayes was a prosecutor. Jennifer Joyce was the next prosecutor. These were serious people, serious lawyers, not conservatives, although um, not totally liberal, not out to lunch liberal, but not, they were Democrats. But Jennifer Joyce is very capable. In fact, I think she's married to a, a prosecutor or maybe even a law enforcement uh, guy. And she, she's not a liberal, 
but she's not uh, she's not exactly a conservative. She would be a Democrat. She would be. And in fact, there were criticisms that her office was um, being used, utilizing their, her prosecutorial discretion was to focus on uh, a lot of domestic abuse. And there was lots of grant money for domestic abuse. So you could be running your prosecutor's office and get a grant to hire five more lawyers. And suddenly five more lawyers are working on domestic abuse. OK, so that's that in and of itself was. um Something people talked about, like, what is a priority? How do you get prosecutorial discretion managed? How do you understand it? But th- th- this is head and shoulders beyond that. Soros, as Musk pointed out, and, and more importantly, Soros money being used by sophisticated leftists, these organizations and entities and all funneled money to help win, to help win races. And the races were. Prosecutors races in St. Louis City, the prosecutor race is a Democrat race. There's no Republican that can win. So it's a Democrat race. So if you can help it and when the prosecutor prosecutors when the prosecutor came open, uh it's called circuit attorney in in uh, in 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 um in St. Louis, up in um New York and Manhattan, it's called the district attorney. And other places it's called other different names. But when that became open, it was a four or five or six person race, as I recall. And in uh in St. Louis and Kim Gardner won. And Kim Gardner was a Soros-backed leftist who said there's far too many people of color in jail. There's far too many people being prosecuted for uh, 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 drug crimes. There's far too many people, blah, 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 and made decisions about who to charge and what. Up in New York City, and maybe pause, New York State first, Letitia James, who's the attorney general, she ran for attorney general and said by name, I'm going to target Trump. But that's a statewide race in New York. That's even, you know, again, it's more expensive to contribute. Well, Manhattan, smaller race, although a big time race, the district attorney. And so they elected this guy, a Bragg, Alvin Bragg, who has said he's going to target Trump and is gone now. And he's he's letting other people go. There's a, a problem of crime in Manhattan. There's a problem of people not getting prosecuted in Manhattan. But they're going to go after Trump and we're going to make they're going to make sure that they're going after Trump. And if you're not following this, this is I mean, this is a real it. Here's the thing. It's one thing. No, it, it's just as bad. The January 6 prosecutions, because they they're they there's so many of them are so blatantly overcharged and, and maybe even more troubling. So many of these prisoners are sitting in jail when they should be at least at home preparing their defense. And then you don't have the video, uh, you know, you don't have the 44,000 hours of video to try to find your defense. All these aspects of things that are deeply troubling, really troubling, big problems. And yet now we have the guy running for president, the favorite to be the nominee, the guy who is obviously the foil of the current occupant in the White House, and he's being targeted in a blatant political way blatantly political it's not even close and people you know are are afraid to protest because the last time you protest you ended up with what you ended up with the the uh, reality of january 6th so there's people that are afraid to protest they don't know what to do and they're being targeted they are being targeted uh it's unbelievable uh, it is crazy uh to see and it's deeply disturbing. And, you know, people say that there's going to be um, there's going to be a um, a- another indictment. There's going to be another indictment. Uh, the um, the reality is the uh, the reality is that people 
are um, getting fed up. You know, someone said on social media, too far, too far, too far is what they said on social media. And people are thinking it's too far. It's just too far. Everything has gone too far. And so I, I don't know what that means, by the way. I really don't. I don't know. I don't think it's a civil disobedience moment, but I do think uh, it, it is a moment where people are really seeing the bright lights. So I heard a commentator say, and this is kind of the, the, the description was if if Trump was right that they're coming for him and it sure looks like it, then it's clear that he was right about other stuff. And someone said it makes uh, Trump look more credible, not less. It make, it strengthens Trump's, the perception of him. And I think that's right. All right. So what you need to know, we're in dangerous, we're in dangerous territory because here's one of the aspects of this that's so frustrating. They don't stop. In other words, they don't stop. They do this. And, and I think that they'll probably indict him. There's one more witness that's being called and then they're going to go indict him and then they're going to have to have him processed or whatever that's going to be. And they're not going to stop. They're not going to say, Oh, we're shamed. And here's why we're back to this. The Soros-funded effort, as Musk said, less money, the investment turns out better, in part because Alvin Bragg doesn't need to be liked by any other Democrat than the wild-eyed Democrats in Manhattan. In Manhattan. That's the thing that's going on. That's the reality that's going on. And so we're in for more of this, not less. This is not, you know, it's not a cautionary tale. You say, oh, wow, you know, what the Soros uh, Soros uh, prosecutors did is really bad. They won't do that again. No, no, they'll do more of it. They'll do more of it. Uh, it it's when someone said that Republicans, someone was quoted saying Republicans will be targeted. Republic, actually, someone said Republicans will be hunted. It certainly feels like that, doesn't it? It feels like Trump supporters are targeted now over and over again. And for the people out there that said, oh, you know, January 6th, those people made the mistake of being there and doing this and doing that. It looks a little clearer, doesn't it? That nobody, none of these prosecutors are playing fair. It's, it's what it looks like more and more. All right. That's what you need to know. We got to, we got to take a break. We'll come back and uh, we've got a lot more. It's Ed Martin here on a Pro-America Report. Back in a moment. Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Time to catch up with my friend Michael Volpe. And I got to tell you, Michael, you know, you sent me one uh, uh, one of your from your Substack, michaelvolpe.substack.com, a link. And I was checking it out and I was looking back. Uh, you know, if you go to that um, Substack, michaelvolpe.substack.com, uh, Michael does incredible. It's called Michael Volpe Investigates. He's an investigative journalist digs into these things. I, Michael, how, how would I, how would you describe how you got into this space? What I'd say is you're a very, very astute investigator into our justice system, especially around family courts and around uh, families. But how'd you get there? How'd you end up in this field? In, in, by, by accident, my brother was going to Emory University uh, many years ago. He found an article about 
corruption at Emory Medical School, and I was just fiddling around with a uh, with a blog. So I essentially just like retook that article, and a guy named Kevin Koritsky contacted me, and he was an Emory University whistleblower, and it went from there. Uh, and that was many years ago. And Kevin's gone to jail for an unrelated matter, though. What he blew the whistle on at Emory, which is they they have all kinds of conflicts with the hospital where the medical school is. Uh, they do the residency. It's called Grady, which is one of the biggest in the world. And they essentially just screw over the patients at Grady who are all poor. That's who goes to Grady. And then hmm. create all of these conflicts and make a bunch of money. Uh, my brother wasn't going to the medical school. And it is a fine school, but that medical school there at, at Emory is extremely corrupt. Hmm. Wow. Well, it's, it's yeah, it's amazing that it's amazing the coverage of digging into this stuff, and it's I, I salute you for it and encourage you. We I wanted to get on, and, and I'll tell you, Michael's a good uh, a colleague for me. He'll send me an email and say, "Here, here's one you ought to look at. I think it would be important to talk about." So, and I, and it's one of those I looked and I said, "Yep, I can see that." So, um, uh, Michael, walk us through um the the case of uh of of this this gentleman uh, Joseph Marcy. What happened, and specifically how. The court system, I don't know, in, in, in spurts, I don't, it, it got it right or got it wrong a couple of times, depending on who's telling the truth, but it certainly right. is inconsistent. Walk us through this, please. So many years ago, a family member on the other side, so from his wife's family, called in a complaint to Child Protective Services alleging that Joe and or his wife were hitting their daughter. Right. This caused a CPS case. And it, it, this all happened in Pennsylvania. In Pennsylvania, they, they have a court related to this. His daughter testified. The judge in that court said she's not credible because she's very easily influenced and suggestive. Uh, he was about to get his daughter back. And the same CPS caseworkers that had just blown that, that physical abuse case now claim that all of a sudden she had accused him of sexual abuse. That gets taken to trial. He's convicted in 2012 of molesting his daughter. Uh, he's serving a 20 to 40 year sentence and 20 years is very unlikely because he, at least for now, unwilling to admit that he right. did it. Uh, right. and that's the only way you're going to get the bottom. Uh, and soon after there were reports that she recanted and she did in fact recant it. Uh, it winds up, they call it post-conviction relief act. So it winds up back in court in front of the same judge, uh, Joseph O'Gallo, who presided over the initial trial. She recants. And for people who don't know, recantation is, is very weak, according to the court in general, when you're trying to overturn a conviction. Um, but in this case, O'Gallo, who heard her testify first, heard her testify again, reverses the conviction, This not the state, but the county, this Luzerne County, which is where the Kids for Cash scandal happened. Um, right. They appeal it. Uh, their argument is, no, she was credible when she first testified, not when she recanted. The appeals court doesn't even care about the substantive article the argument, and they claim that Joe didn't file in time, and it gets very deep into the weeds. It's a very gray area. But what people should know is if Luzerne County felt like he didn't file in time, they should have they should have said it to the PCRA judge, Ogella. They didn't. They certainly should have said it to the appeals court. They didn't. The appeals court is called sua sponte. That's the legal term. Right, right. On their own decided that this was done not in time. 
And since that time, and for almost a decade now, that's the argument that's been made is whether or not he is or is not on time. No, Aaron County, I interviewed the DA who's doing the appeal. They continue to insist, no, her first uh, initial testimony was real, everything else since then. But she talked to me, and his daughter's over 18, her name is Destiny. She, it's not that, that she just uh, said her dad did it when he didn't. CPS caseworkers, police, other people in authority, they manipulated her when she was five, six years old to get her to say that her dad did it. She said when when she and, and it was another guy, she says, who did it. Whenever she would bring that guy up, they say things like, we don't want to hear about that. We want to hear about your dad. And when she would say, oh, my dad did it, she'd get teddy bears, other gifts. This sort of thing works on people our age. You can imagine a five-year-old. And so this looks like they, they wanted someone convicted and they did everything they could. And then now the courts and the prosecutors are using a very, very deep in the weeds right. legal technicality to keep him in jail, even as their corruption is in, immense in this case. And that's probably why they argue this very deep. You know, if you're oh, asking, yeah. why are they keeping him in jail if everyone can see he didn't do it? Right. Well, because My- it seems like they did a lot wrong and they want to keep him in jail. Uh, Michael Volpe is our guest again. Uh, Michael, go to his web, uh, his Substack, michaelvolpe.substack.com and to look more into this. Michael, I want to pause and go back. I didn't interrupt you and, and I, and I find it so interesting and important and I'm glad you're writing on it. I'm glad you come on my program and we can circulate your voice on this. Pausing though, one thing. Pennsylvania has one, a specialized court for this stuff, right? I, I, I want to underscore, I want to underscore for our listeners that one of the things that has happened over the last, and correct me what Michael, when I'm off a little bit, if I'm off only a little bit, you can let it go. But if I'm off by a lot, but probably in the last 30 to 40 years, there's been the proliferation of these specialized courts who are invested in, if I can say, the notion that they are finding wrongdoing and fixing it. And it's kind of like, you know, if you, if you, if you, if you say, if you give a dog a bone and then say, you know, I'm not doing that well. It's not good. But you, you know, you're saying, Hey, here's the, here's the topic we're on. Let's go find it. Oh, here it is. I got it. Now I got it. If you a hammer to a hammer, everything's a nail. And so is that, tell us about that court in Pennsylvania and the proliferation of these courts and how that's working and fitting. I know you've written and talked about it. I know, but a lot of people don't track this well enough and need to hear it again and again and again. I, I don't know if it's 30 or 40 years. There, there are a lot of specialized courts. And, and I think basically what you're saying is the court needs to justify its existence. Exactly. A, yeah. There, there yeah. are housing courts. There, in this case, it was, a, it went to a, like a specialized trial for like CPS abuse neglect cases. So a judge decided whether CPS, um, in in the special court, it normally just goes to like like the 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 family court system, um, and and I don't know if it's ever like a no, and it can be a judge, but in in this case, that's who heard it, and and as I said, that particular judge said that Destiny was not credible because she was easily suggestible, and then they go and and give her another uh um like crime against Joe, but I, there, there are a lot of different courts. I, I don't, I don't know if that means that they're finding wrong, but, but there are certainly a lot of different courts that are created. And that's not a generally a state by state. The states 
have the power and the authority to create whatever court, not whatever, but based on the state constitution. And that's, that's a 10th amendment issue. The, the state can create its own court system. Uh, and, and so as long as that court system doesn't violate the U.S. constitution, which certainly a, a housing court would not do, a CPS court would not do, uh, they can, they can do based on their own state constitution as they please. Uh, but they do, they do create a lot of specialized courts. The, the, the positive, what, what the defenders would say is that that's how, you know, like, like in bankruptcy court, the judges only hear bankruptcy and then they know that very, very well. Um, the, the detractors will say you're creating a lot of different courts. Uh, and then you, then the, the other way is somebody would hear a criminal matter one day, that judge, and then a bankruptcy matter another day. Right. And you're expecting them to have expertise on everything, and they wouldn't necessarily have expertise on everything. And and, and I can tell you specifically, more than one judge has complained, I, I hate being in child custody, of, of all the things that they get to hear. That's the one thing that, for the most part, the judge will complain about when they do complain. Um, so the judges... and. And this all is different in different states. So in the states where the judges filter through multiple courthouses, you will hear primarily when they're complaining about child custody. It's uh, again, Mike, Michael Volpe is our guest and uh, his substack, Michael Volpe, uh, excuse me, Michael Volpe dot dot com. I sometimes mess that up. Uh, okay, Michael. So back to the uh, Marcy case. Um, what's next? What's possible? Um, what, what kind of uh, help? Is there uh, to be had either from the bully pulpit or from ac- practically from uh, any federal or, or national elected officials? But w- what's next in this in this matter? So he he has a lawyer pro bono, a guy named David Roth, who who teaches at least part time at Yale. So this is no uh, slouch. But essentially, the same arguments that have been made the whole time are still being made. the The prosecution will will claim that the initial um, that that her, that Destiny's initial testimony is the credible one. Everything else ever ever since is not. But also that he didn't file it in time. The the first argument seems to be academic because the same judge Ogella was in the 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 first the first trial and then heard the the recantation. So he's in the best position to to judge. And you really want to give him deference. The other one is a just even lawyers, I think, would not find it uh, interesting. But the the oral arguments were made, and and what Ross said is he's waiting for a decision from there. Three years ago, I wrote about this on the Daily Caller, and we were waiting for a decision from a magi- from a federal magistrate judge, and he actually overturned the conviction shortly after my article came out. But then it went to the full panel and the full panel overturned him. And so now this is the appeals court on top of them. And I don't know what you can do. You, you can't, you're not really supposed to call the appeals court and try to lobby for it. You can call the governor of Pennsylvania and ask that, uh, that, that his sentence be commuted because the argument here is over a very technical issue. No one really thinks that, that he's guilty and there's no evidence anymore of his guilt. The entire evidence was destiny. She's no longer willing to testify he did it. She's saying someone else did it. So you're keeping the guy in jail on, on a legal technicality that almost no one can understand. As far as the legal technicality, John Hakem was the lawyer who did that appeal. 
And what he told me is that based on their argument, if he had filed when they claimed he needed to file, he felt that Ogello would have dismissed it because the filing would have been defective because it wouldn't have had enough. So he said, well, then I'm going to catch 22. In order for me to get it past Ogello, I wouldn't have been able to file when they say I'm supposed to file. And now after it got past him, they're saying I didn't file it in time. And as I said, the... They didn't argue this when it was in front of him. They didn't even argue this when it was in front of the first appeals court. The first appeals court on its own decided that it had been filed not on time. And that suggests that shady things are going on, that they're using legal technicalities to keep him in jail. And you can see why. If they pressured a five-year-old to say someone who didn't do it did it, meanwhile protecting another guy, that would be the reason they want to keep him in jail. Well, it sure is. Um, first of all, it's a mess. And uh, second of all, I'm glad you're shining a light on it. Um, and uh, people should go and learn more about it. And if they, especially if we have uh, listeners who listen to the sh- uh, podcast or uh, a standalone link that are in Pennsylvania, if you have a way to uh, uh, raise your voices. Hey, thank you, Michael. As always, thanks for all the investigations you're doing and, and getting out there on these issues. Michael Volpe, again, michaelvolpe.substack.com. Appreciate it very much, Michael. Thank you for having me. All right, we will take a break, and we'll be right back. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. We'll be back in a moment, and don't forget, go to ProAmericaReport.com, sign up there for the daily emails, and we'll be right back. Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro America Report. It's been a while since we talked to, uh, my friend, Mark Schneider, uh, who, um, for a while was like the, I don't know, maybe the top two or three people out in the country talking about the questions around, uh, some of the green energy, but more importantly, nuclear energy. And so this morning when I saw a, um, an article, uh, that was uh, talking about the issues of energy and all. I think it originally ran in Politico. Yeah, it was actually European. Uh, I like to look at. I tell my. I tell my uh, listeners, Mark. I, I I read Politico, but if you click on Politico correctly, you'll end up in the European version. It's very interesting to see. And so um, I sent him a piece about uh, what they're doing in the uh, European Union and all. And uh, I thought we'd catch up. So welcome back, Mark Schneider. How are you? I'm doing great, Ed. Thanks for having me again. Uh, well, it's great to have you. Now, first, um, broadly speaking, the march towards clean nuclear to a nuclear that works, it doesn't melt down, it's able to be managed, it continues marching on. What's the update? What do you know? Uh, give me some uh, a sort of thumbnail on where we are. It's been a little bit out of the news, I think. Well, the big news in the United States is that Vogel Unit 3 went uh, critical for this to- for the first time. That means that the reactor was brought to life, if you will. It had its first, you know, took its first breath. Um, so it's now operating, it's generating power for the very first time. So that's huge news. It's the first Gen 3 reactor built in the United States. So uh, that's a big thing. Um, the other thing, just around the world, there are more countries that are building nuclear. Egypt has broken ground on a four-unit facility um, out in UAE. They've just brought online their third uh, nuclear unit. Um, and then the big news out of China, actually, is is that they have a Generation 4 reactor that is online now. So now you have Russia and China that are using Generation 4 reactors. And nowhere else in the world is doing that. The march towards nuclear is continuing to progress. I just wish, wish the Western world would catch up. Uh, we're talking with Mark Schneider. Again, Mark, um, when you hear that China is uh, uh, Gen 4 uh, online, Russia is, are we behind now? I mean, and I think I know the answer we are, but are we 
Are we far behind, America? We're not far behind. We're we're behind in in a regulatory aspect. That's what's what's holding us back. We know the technology. We just need to allow it to be built. But unfortunately, bureaucracy is getting in the way of the Western world. The um uh, and then Europe is. Uh, I mean, there are they. Uh, I think France is uh, happy to be in nu- a nuclear, right? And they've gone back to it. Is the is Europe understanding that you're never going to go green unless you uh, go nuclear? Um, Europe is understanding that. Uh, Germany at the end of last year figured that out and uh, delayed shutting down their nuclear plants because they realized that uh, a they couldn't hack it with the uh, what's going on with Ukraine. So they were having to import too much uh, Russian uh, energy. So they had to keep their nuclear units online. The other thing is, is that if you look at Russia versus France, or sorry, Germany versus France, Germany's paying double for their energy prices. They're the most polluting of the Western uh, European nations because they're they keep shutting down their coal plants and they're pushing for the quote unquote greened. Uh, wind and solar. In fact, actually, they're bringing more coal units online to make up for their lack of power because of bringing more wind and solar online and shutting down their old nuclear units. Uh, again, we're, we're talking with Mark Schneider, getting an update on nuclear. Um, the uh, so what are the next what 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 if the next five years? What do you expect to see? I mean, will there be a point here, Mark, where um, everybody suddenly realizes, holy cow? Uh, we should have been here or we should be here faster and it will become sort of, I mean, we already have like AOC up in the democratic caucus in the house who said, Hey, um, you know, we're going to be, um, we're going to nuclear is going to be part of the solution. That's a big change, right? Is, are we going to see sort of a accelerating momentum or are we still going to do this fits and starts? I mean, I think I know that you'd say, look, under Trump, there was an openness from the regulators, but there, there still were regulations and lots of things that slowed it down or, you know, sort of regulatory wise. But now you have antagonism from the regulators, but still there's momentum. Are we going to see an acceleration of the momentum? Is that your best prediction or is that your best hope or where do you think we're headed? I think that everyone's realizing that uh, that we probably should have been doing nuclear, you know, in 2005 when George Bush was pushing it. That's when we should have started. Uh-huh. And we were starting. But then Fukushima hit and that took a big old chunk out of the momentum. And I think that we're just now getting back on track with that. When you look at companies like New Scale, companies um, like uh, uh, BWX, uh, they are their reactor. Their reactors are getting licensed or licensed. And they're ready to start production. Uh, I believe it's next year that uh, the UAMPS project out in Idaho, uh, which is a six-unit small modular reactor. This is somewhere between a Gen 3 and a Gen 4 design is going to start construction. And uh, and it looks like what I'm when I see around the news and and in conversations I have that uh, New Scale slated to build 200 units in the next two decades. That's a lot of reactors. Now they're smaller reactors, only about 77 megawatts compared to the big, you know, 1100, you know, megawatt uh, AP 1000s. Um, but I mean, still, that's a that's a lot of reactors. And when you get, they're going to be factory built, right? So you build it yeah. in the factory, ship it in, put the stuff together, should be uh, relatively quick. And I think we're going to get there a lot faster. We just gotta we just gotta get through the the initial production stage we're in the low rate of initial production is where we're at and once you get low rate then it's on to full production and i think we're about 10 years out from full production 
Uh, we're talking with Mark Schneider again. Mark, you must have uh, smiled when you saw um, or read the uh, when uh, Trump was proposing brand new cities, um, because I, I got to figure at some point, you know, you, you, trying to get trying to fuel or trying to get the uh, necessary energy to keep certain cities. Uh, I, I'm up in Washington D.C. right now. Going, it's just this kind of you know, uphill task. It's like Sisyphus. You push the damn dang thing up and it rolls back on you. It may be that, you know, the, the, the Mark Schneider in 10 years is going to be, you know, brought in to, to help design a city or a, maybe a towns it's going to be that have energy and that, that a solution could be its own nuclear generator, right? Yes, absolutely. And the great thing is, is that with these new designs that are coming out, you can scale them, right? So you have a big city, let's say you want to use an AP-1000 reactor, but then you have a small city, like a small town, you could use an Oklo Aurora, right? So we have scalable solutions based on the size of a town. You know, a, a giant reactor, a thousand, you know, one gigawatt reactor is going to power several hundred thousand homes, whereas, you know, one of new one of uh, um, Oklo's reactors is only going to power about a thousand homes, right? So you can scale it based on where you are. Um, I like using, my idea is, would be if I could if I could redesign the grid as it is, um, we could go to every substation and throw in one of these uh, micro reactors. Oh, oh, I see. Quarter acre. Yeah. And uh, you know, power a thousand homes, and then you know, in the event of a major outage, you can still put power onto the homes that are nearby. I got you. I got you. So that you think that's it. You think that's uh well, and and maybe that's more practical. A, a, a small, I don't know. Practical might be the wrong word, but more likely, you, you're less likely to get large scale uh, people moving to new towns necessarily, right, or to new cities. So um, that may be the better uh, solution. Although uh, it would be exciting to see how you could, as, as you say, design uh, scale one up. Uh, okay, last question. Number one thing that could happen, like tomorrow, to make things in America move better for nuclear is there one aspect of the regulatory thing is there one person don't say president biden or anything like that i mean is there one specific thing you say people don't realize you could make this work a lot better if this happened um the biggest thing would be to put someone who understands these advanced nuclear designs in charge of the nuclear regulatory commission or to um exercise the civilian uh, option for executive order one, two, three, four, four, which is the direction of the, uh, director of naval nuclear propulsion for a non water cooled reactor. That's the next step we need to do is get away from water cooled and we need a change in mindset. And whether it's naval reactors or the nuclear regulatory commission, a shift in one of those would mean a shift in the entire mindset of the nuclear nation, the regulatory side of it, and we can get there. Did you have that in the past? Was there somebody good in that spot in the past, or do people not even realize how important that is? Um, uh, the first director of naval nuclear propulsion, Admiral Rickover, oh. <laughs> uh, is the one who who set the tone of nuclear energy through the uh, 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, and that was when we were uh, dramatically increasing our use of nuclear energy. Hmm. So, one of the, again, we need a new Rickover, if you will. Yeah. I nominate uh, Mark Schneider, but that's another that's another for another day. All right, hey Mark, thank you. Thanks for the quick update and jumping on with us. We appreciate you very much, and uh, wish you well. Thank you. Thank you. All right, Mark Schneider, everybody. I'll put up on social media too. He's uh, at Sub Schneider. I meant to say that. I love to tease him about his Twitter handle. He has a retired Navy man who is uh, 
uh, on uh, submarines uh, and also is an expert on uh, nuclear power. So uh, very helpful to get his input. Uh, we will take a break. I'll put uh, up on uh, social media the article that uh, he and I were referring to. It was mostly initially about Europe and what Europe's doing on their um, uh, energy. Uh, but great to get an update on all the nuclear uh, where we are. We'll take a break and we will be right back. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Back in a moment. This is the Phyllis Schlafly Report, a daily commentary continuing the conservative pro-family legacy of Phyllis Schlafly. Now the president of Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, Ed Martin. The taxpayer bailout of higher education and the repayment of loans related to it came under scrutiny in February when the U.S. Supreme Court heard oral arguments on Joe Biden's plan to stick Americans with the potentially hundreds of billions of dollars in unpaid student loans. Two lawsuits had challenged Biden's debt forgiveness program, one brought by a half a dozen states, while the other by former students who were partially or completely excluded from the relief plan. Nationwide, more than $1.75 trillion, not billion, dollars in student loan debts have piled up. Students who go on to graduate school are typically unable to pay down any of this debt, and the longer they stay in graduate school, the longer they can typically postpone being held in default on the crushing debt that their unwillingness to work causes. The late Phyllis Schlafly worked a 48-hour-a-week job, commuting an hour each way in order to fully pay her way through college in the 1940s. Almost no students do that today, and with Joe Biden promising to waive loan obligations, there's little reason for students to work to pay for what they can obtain for free. As conservatives, we believe in the basic principle of fiscal responsibility because we understand the dangers of the just-print-more philosophy of government spending. After all, the just-print-more philosophy is the kind of recklessness that brought us to the terrible inflation we're suffering from today. However, it is equally important to understand the trap that our federal government is creating for our young people by encouraging sky-high student loans for worthless degrees. Every year, graduation season is followed by a flood of stories about young people with useless college degrees, massive student debt, and a dead-end job. Rather than guaranteeing student loans without meaningful oversight, maybe someone should caution an 18-year-old about the dangers of taking out $150,000 in loans for a degree in Native American poetry. Ultimately, this is a failure of parenting. Trustworthy adults need to be warning their children about these dangers. Debt forgiveness is not the answer. Leading our youth to personal and societal fiscal responsibility is the most healthy path forward. This has been the Phyllis Schlafly Report from Phyllis Schlafly Eagles. Do you have a college-bound son or daughter? Do you care about the next generation? At phyllisschlafly.com, we expose the liberal agenda and anti-Christian mindset found on most college campuses and help equip conservative students to stand up for their beliefs. Visit us at phyllisschlafly.com and join us again next time for the Phyllis Schlafly Report. Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Just a couple of minutes left today. Let me just finish with a call to action, a call to action. Uh, the call to action goes to and goes uh, uh, towards the U.S. House of Representatives, the Republican majority, uh, both congressmen, uh, excuse me, but both Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy, as well as 
I, I must say it's time to ask and make sure that the other members of that uh, body, that they go ahead and release all of the the video, all of the video that's available uh, to the uh, that, that should be available. All of it. Forty four thousand hours. We need to put some pressure. Congressman Steele, S-T-E-I-L, is the head of one of the committees. We need that money. We need that stuff released. We need all the video, all the hours released. That that has to happen. And so no more excuses, no more excuses. Uh, and we need to get it done. Um, so I, I'm, I'm a little concerned that some of the energy and steam that was sort of building up in the, uh, in the effort to get the, to the bottom of things has sort of dissipated. And I want to make sure that people are hearing that we have got to get it all out. In other words, whatever, don't let people and, and, and you, you know, we the people you're listening. If you listen to this, we got to get pressure, whether it's social media, phone calls, letters, whatever, and get the message to, uh, the, to your, to your members of Congress that we want this, uh, released all of it. All of it needs to be available. Not some of it, not part of it, not a little bit of it. All of it needs to be available to the people to crowd watch it. To crowd watch it so we can get to the bottom of exactly what happened. You will not get to the bottom of what happened on January 6th by three or four really good Tucker segments. I am not complaining. They were great. But we've got to get to the bottom of everything. And the only way to do that is to get all the videotape out. All the access to all the hours. Post it. Put it in such a way that people can get to it. Kevin McCarthy, Speaker of the House, Congressman Brian Steele, it's time to release all the video, all the video of January 6th and do it right away. All right. That's the uh, that's the last thing you need to know today. We'll be back tomorrow. It's Ed Martin. Thank you very much to the great Noah Dingley, our producer, Ryan Hyde, associate producer, and you for listening. Don't forget, visit Patriot, uh, Patriot, visit ProAmericaReport.com, ProAmericaReport.com. Sign up there for the daily email, and we'll be back tomorrow. It's Ed Martin here on the ProAmerica Report. Talk to you then. Report on the answer, San Diego. Three star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to, he understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.